for tuning in to Talking Day 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Kev Jenkins, art director on The Force Awakens, Lucasfilm design supervisor for The Last Jedi, and production designer on The Rise of Skywalker. From designing the sequel trilogy to recreating classic sets like the Lars Homestead, this is such an incredible deep dive into an equally incredible career. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 76, Kev Jenkins. Well, I don't want to take too much more of your time, so we can just dive in, and you've done a ton. So I'd love to to, to start at the very beginning and first like talk about your influences growing up. Like, What, what inspired you? What really drew your eye back then? I was always a kid that drew, and obviously... You know, you probably hear this from a lot of people of my generation where, you know, back in the 70s when I was growing up, there was less to do than there is now. So I just used to draw and I used to read a lot of books and I used to be mad about sci-fi. I used to be mad about Ray Harrahausen. I used to love Flash Gordon. I used to love all those kind of things. And I used to sort of read a lot of sort of fancy novels such as Conan and stuff. And my first real influences I remember, you know, was literally sort of, it wasn't artistically seeing Star Wars, but Star Wars was the first time I remember, because I can remember the very, in fact, I've still got the actual ticket from seeing Star Wars back in in the 70s and 80s. And um, I remember, that's the first time I was conscious of someone drawing that was then used in a film, which was seeing Ralph's work. Um, so I was heavily influenced at the time to be interested in movies because of Ralph McQuarrie, which I, it's a lot of Star Wars artists will tell you the same as well. Um, Frank Frazetta was a massive influence on me. I used to just copy Frank Frazetta pictures all the time as a kid. Those were the two main ones, apart from going into the early 80s, where I was heavily influenced by a lot of book jacket illustrators. Um, because, you know, growing up as a, as, as a kind of a kid, you kind of think, how the hell did you get in the film business? In fact, I didn't even think, I didn't even know what that even meant. So I just thought, well, I knew that Chris Foss and, and Ron Cobb and Ralph McQuarrie had all got into films and they were book jacket illustrators. So I thought, well, I'll, 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 I'll try and do that and maybe one day I'll work on a movie. It was pretty simple. <laughs> I mean, your first work, I mean, for years was in advertising, right? How did that work kind of inspire you? Or- well, it, it it was actually all three things. I was working as a freelance illustrator, so I did advertising work, which paid the bills because book jackets mm-hmm. didn't. I did book jackets for love, so I always did these these two things at the same time. Book jackets because I always wanted to paint like um, Michael Whelan was another mm-hmm. influence of mine, and actually some artists that have become friends of mine had the same agent. So Frank Gam- uh, Fred Gambino, sorry, and um, Peter Elson is another book jacket illustrator that was a huge influence on me, who's sadly no longer with us. Chris Moore um, was a big sci-fi illustrator in the 70s and 80s book jackets in England. I was a big fan of his. And these are actually people that I actually got to know through being an illustrator. I'm very close friends with Fred Gambino. I, I did, did sort of get to know Chris more reasonably well when I was, when I was an artist. And, um, but I did that. I sort of did three things at the same time. I did book jackets. I did early games covers because I was sort of involved in as the game scene was coming through the Amiga scene. And so I was doing designs for games early on and I was doing advertising, which was paying the bills, which was, um, again, reasonably lucrative, but thoroughly dull. <laughs> as as someone that uh, is in the advertising business, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> uh, again, paid, paid brilliantly, but but sort of loathed doing it is the way to look at it. An end to a means. Means to a means. <laughs> 
anyway, whichever way. Well, your your process is very interesting to me because it seems just based on your filmography and also just all the work that you're able to do on set that you have many different ways that you get to an end product, whether it is painting or texturing or model making, whatever processes. I'd love to talk at the very beginning of your career, especially in film, just how your process evolved over time. You started off like doing texture and matte painting, and then how did that kind of evolve? I got into film because, again, it comes back to the Star Wars thing, as well as knowing what Ralph's work was like. I was a big fan of Mike Pangrazio's work. And and so, I, I again, I didn't know what I wanted to do or be, but I, I, I sort of loved everything to do with movies and the process of making movies artistically. So I went down the route of becoming a matte painter. I only became a texture painter. And this was very different. This was around sort of 2000, 2001. And... Texture, again, the, the business is very different now. It's very procedural and teams were very small back then working on movies. And so I got in as a texture painter, but only for a few months to be a matte painter. And then I started off sort of matte painting. And that was when there was a, probably only about four matte painters in London. I mean, now they have hundreds. And back then we had to actually like a physical matte painter. You couldn't get 10, two or you couldn't get 1K photos <laughs> on the internet. So, so we actually, in my early map paintings that I did on shows like Thunderbirds and AVP, you actually had to paint them just digitally in Photoshop. So, so that was a, that was a big thing for me. I, I, you know, it's like I kind of set these insane goals in my life and then just try to tick them off. Being a map painter was one of them. Doing book jackets was another. And so, um, and then the map painting led on to. Um, being a digital environment artist and I was a TD in visual effects and then around the same time as that um, as sort of supervising in visual effects that I was getting into I was also finding that the frontier of visual effects was becoming it was kind of losing its pioneering edge like I feel it has done now because now you can do almost anything and back then when I started it was like oh my god we've got to render it cube you know it wasn't that simple but it was very much like everything was really hard and I remember when we did Superman Returns and it was just like how the hell are we going to do this for it was it, the shots I was doing with a colleague of mine was the um the the sort of the fortress of solitude that was done where on, on the island with um Kevin Spacey and um Brandon Ruth basically um I did a whole bunch of stuff on that as the whole thing was collapsing and everything was really hard but that was back in the day when as an artist in VFX, instead of what it is now with these enormous teams, um, I did 35 shots, nearly, you know, basically, you know, lit them, rendered them, uh, modeled them, uh, small, you know, two or three of us, and we comped them, and you kind of, you did right. sequence, um, and, and there was consistency there. And I sort of did that, and then, and then I started to get bored again, because I sort of seemed to have a low attention span, and then I, th there was just a, there was some downtime, I remember, and we the company I was with was pitching on some work, and I ended up on set working on Prince of Persia, mm -hmm. and um, I worked with um, with the production designer and and with the VFX supervisor, and sort of developed. There was the sand room sequence in the Prince of Persia with all the collapsing buildings and stuff, and I was just left alone to sort of to do that. But I was doing it mainly sort of conceptually and that kind of, I just thought that was kind of interesting. And so then from then created London's first sort of VFX art department, uh, Frame Store, had a small team and then ended up being asked by uh, Lucasfilm to kind of start up ILM London, which is then just, you know, part of the process. Right. 
incredible. I mean, <laughs> really, because your work throughout it all, right, whether it's World War Z or, you know, and then you get through, you know, either Golden Compass or War Horse. Is that how you first kind of started working with Rick Carter or when did you guys first start? Connecting? Yeah, yeah. Rick, Rick was a strange one. Again, I was just getting into this phase of trying to work out how to get more into concept art when, again, there was very few concept artists around 20 years ago. Now there's, you know, there's, they're in games, they're in everything. And what happened was that I was doing some pitch work and I was introduced to a production designer uh, that I kind of got to know. And, and at the time we had heard at the company I was with that basically, oh, there was maybe an opportunity. Steven Spielberg was going to maybe do a film in London and not use ILM. And it was like, oh, this is interesting. And so I literally spoke to this designer I was working with and I got Rick's email address and I, and I did a couple of paintings for Warhorse um, and I just sent them off to him with kind of like a, a sort of introductory letter and, and that was it. And then he came in to do his pitch and back then they would come and they would do all the main facilities in London and Rick or the producers or whoever would kind of go to each one and they'd do their conversation and that. And Rick did this thing when I was at the company and sat there and pitched the film and described it to us for about an hour and a half. And it was all very exciting. We think, oh my God, you know, Spielberg's going to do a film in London. This is great. It'd be amazing to work with him. And then at the end of the meeting, Rick just said, he said, right, which one of you's Kev? And I went, ah, that's me. Uh-huh. And he just basically said, okay, so can you come to my office on Monday? And so I went out to the studio on the Monday and we had a chat for about an hour. Uh-huh. And he said to me, um, well, you should come and work on this with me. We should just develop, develop, you know, some, you know, we should just work on this. And I went, okay, that'd be great. Wow, what an opportunity to get to work with Rick. Because I knew Rick from Jurassic Park. Right. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a legendary production designer. And, and he said, but we've got no room here. And I went, okay. He said, so why don't you come and work in my office with me? Wow. Yeah. So I basically spent six months working directly with Rick in his office. And, we're, we're, you know, we're very close friends still. And from there, I got to know Kathy very well. And um, Janusz Kaminski, Stephen's cinematographer, was there. And so basically, I ended up strangely just being in this nucleus of this powerhouse of legendary production right. for Stephen. And saw through Warhorse. And then Rick asked me to do some work on Lincoln with him. And we kind of stayed in touch ever since up, up until I then worked, the next time I worked with him was on Force Awakens. Right. I mean, the the ILM London is such an interesting part of this whole process. So how did you first get involved with them? And then was Force Awakens the first project you worked there? Or Well, what, what happened was the four facilities in London were, un, you know, we'd heard rumors that ILM were coming to London. And I'd always vowed to myself that I would never leave the company I was at to work for any other VFX company, purely because in a strange way, they're all the same. And the only one I ever said, you know, that I'd ever want to work for was ILM, but I never wanted to go and work for ILM in San Francisco because it's a bit of an upheaval and I'd heard it had a lot of history and I didn't want to kind of get involved in that kind of fight because by then my goal was firmly set on trying to be a production designer. And so what had happened was I was very comfortable at Framestore, global art director, all this kind of stuff, brilliant relationship with everyone there. But again, I was starting to get a little bit burnt out by the process personally, looking for a new challenge. And Linwin Brennan, who was at the time the president of ILM, sort of popped to me an email sort of out out of the blue just said would you like a chat so then I ended up having a sort of phone call kind of introductory chat with Lin Wen and then I had a chat with John Knoll and then I had a chat with 
Doug and Knack, who was in the art department, because again, it, it was very ambiguous at that point when Lucasfilm had bought, been bought by Disney, sort of how it, now it's kind of separate, ILM, Lucasfilm, but it was a little bit sort of, you know, the art department was very conjoined then rather than separate what it is now. Um, and then they they sort of asked me to to join because they never intended to set up a London art department. And then I sort of I kind of agreed to do it, but I agreed to do it because I knew I wanted to do Star Wars. And in fact, in the job interview, they said, "But what do you want to do?" I said, "I just want to I just want to do Star Wars." <laughs> right. Um, and and that, and through the whole interview process, I hadn't told Rick, who had already mailed me to say in his long winded way, Kev. I'm doing Star Wars. Do you know anyone who can work on it? Because you're not at ILM, you can't, right. which was a kind of loaded message. So I didn't tell him until I'd sort of signed on the dotted line, right. which was, took about three or four months. And then when I had done, I, I sort of mailed Rick. And the only reply I got was, you start on this date, bad robot have signed you up. And so basically, I just ended up going, I, I never really, in the whole time I was at ILM, I never really worked there properly. I just just started right. at Pinewood on Force Awakens, and 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 just that was it really. And I I did dip in and out, but I was the only sort of Lucasfilm artist to spend his whole time through some pre on on Force Awakens, but pre production and post for all three films for Lucasfilm in the UK on 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 the films, even though. A lot of good friends of mine, you know, Ryan and James were around a lot, but but I was the only one to spend the whole time at Pinewood for Lucasfilm as an artist. Right. Well, and I'd love to get that differentiation from you because I don't think a lot of people, we talk to a lot of visual effects, concept designers and artists. And then what's the difference between that, let's say, and then an on-set art director and the work that you're doing that way? Well, my role is kind of ambiguous because... Obviously, now as a production designer, I do, you know, use concept artists because I'm just generally too busy because you can't do it all. But when I was on Star Wars, it's kind of a hybrid role I was I was on, which is because I do have an understanding of sort of set design and visual effects. I was doing concept art, but solving specific problems of sets because basically most concept artists are used in a way of like, you know, depending on what you need, again, I need different things than other production designers because I am a concept artist. And so I'm normally, the poor people that I work with very closely, I'm very specific because I know what I wanted to draw as a designer. So I ask my concept artist to work with me to do that version, what I can't do. But but other people use them, you know, for inspiration. And, 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 and actually, it's always good to get other ideas, you know, with other people. But the difference is, is if you're a VFX concept artist you're generally should we say doing inspirational artwork that may be at the beginning but generally used in post at the end to kind of help solve problems that haven't been solved through production but being an on-set concept artist you're generally solving set-based problems which is you know we're building that what does that look like and how big is that blah 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 all that kind of stuff but because I sort of lived in both worlds and I was Lucasfilm rather than a freelancer. So my prerogative was initially on Force Awakens was to work mostly, I sort of started as a concept artist and then floated mostly into an art director, which is actually designing sets. And so what I was doing with, because James Klein, uh, my very good friend was with me, um, when we were, that's how I first met him, was sharing an office on Force Awakens. But we were basically together rattling through all of the sort of, um, 
through actually all three Star Wars films, pretty much James and myself did most of the First Order stuff and the Empire stuff between us. And so in Force Awakens, we kind of did the, all the Starkiller-based stuff and all of the all of the sets and the look of of what the corridors, the base itself was like and all that kind of stuff. But but basically doing it in a way where JJ could, where we could literally build the sets with, with Darren and Rick, who were the production designers on that show. So it's very hard to describe to people, but generally as a VFX concept artist, you're very much more remote than being on set. Right. Very interesting. And I mean, especially what you're talking about, making Star Wars tangible is such a feat, if only because of the legacy of that, right? You have Roger Christian, you have all these, Harry Lang, all the people that built all the originals and having to, and you said something very interesting in an interview, or maybe it was a panel where trying to make, especially Force Awakens, a sequel to Return of the Jedi and make it as if it was like a 19... That was a big conversation point with JJ, because one of the things that is very difficult... And I did wield a big stick over as a production designer on on Rise of Skywalker. Because what was strange was on Force Awakens, we were trying to work it out. Mm-hmm. We were trying to figure out what was a classic sort of Star Wars. Look. And now people look back on that now. And I've read a lot of fan comments about how people feel about the sequel trilogy. And I just, I just you know, in 10 years time, everyone's going to have a very different feeling about how everything looks like we do now about films that we saw 10, 20, 30 years ago. What was incredibly difficult about Force Awakens was figuring it out. And, and it turned out that very few concept artists could step in to do Ralph's work because so much had been mined for the, for the, the prequel trilogy but also the prequel trilogy was trying to be, should we say, more retro, more Flash Gordon, more art, whatever it was. It wasn't what we were trying to do. We were trying to do, and that was the original conversation with JJ, it was a sequel to Return of the Jedi. So we had to take that look from those three Star Wars films and then try to transpose that and, and continue in that process, which turned out to be incredibly bloody hard. Yeah. And 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 literally, it was called the batting average. We called it. And and out of all the art, you know, there was a lot of concept artists in the film. And if you've seen the art of book, right. it's full of lots of amazing, amazing stuff. But to get it look like 1980s Star Wars was incredibly difficult and painful. And 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 to be honest with you, um, none of the films after that, Rogue One, Solo, or even the other films that we did, or even Mandalorian now. All of that came from the person that restrained everybody to nail that look was JJ. Mm-hmm. He rejected so much stuff to basically, and it was really hard to figure out what he was trying to do, but to even get it to look like Star Wars, because it look, could have looked like, by that time, if you've got to imagine, you know, when we saw Star Wars, and I saw Star Wars because I'm so old, but when we saw Star Wars, I guess we used the rule we, but basically when we saw it, there was nothing else out there. You know, that it was Star Wars and then other small bits of sci-fi. Now there's so much sci-fi. It's very easy and for Star Wars to potentially dribble into random sci-fi. And a lot of it, J.J. pulled us back from, from just being random sci-fi. So we can all look in a book and go, that's very cool. But if it doesn't serve the story, it's irrelevant. And if it, you know, and, and a piece of art, you know, I, I, I call it, this is the one thing that I used to kind of, you know, either you know i figured out through through the force awakens but on the next one is it's very easy to to make an image look star wars that as a concept artist you can cheat i used to call it it's like i used to you know if basically if you cloned out the stormtrooper or the r2 droid that people would put in there to make it look like a star wars piece of concept art right. does it still look like star wars so 
if you can't, re- you, know, you know, we would say you can't rely on a pill light, you can't rely on an R2, and you can't rely on a, on a TIE fighter, all the normal things. And then if you take those out and it still looks like Star Wars, then you've got it. But that's really hard, mm-hmm. really hard. I mean, I think I think one of the ways to really dial that in in this conversation is how the Millennium Falcon had to change for Force Awakens and the work that you had to do on that for the radar dish specifically. What was that process like for something so iconic and then having to work with JJ directly on creating something that felt, again, like Star Wars, but making it tangible? Well, again, I can only describe it in Force Awakens that everyone was finding their way compared to um, the films that came afterwards. It, it was it, it it was hard to figure out. We were doing it as we went along, and you know, and, and most of it was just being, trying to figure out ways of using callbacks to how they did Star Wars. Because because one of the, and I would call it a massive detriment of of the way we do things digitally compared to traditionally. Then was Star Wars actually found its look through a couple of things. It found it through a very talented illustrator who basically his style became imprinted to Star Wars, which was Ralph's work. But then from the ships, that came from the fact that they were actually scratch-built models. And their look came from being that. And so when we took it digitally, you you were finding that you were losing something. So we then came up with processes like getting all the model kit parts scanned in from the original Star Wars film so we could use them to scratch-build models to make our models. And so it became a kind of what everyone now terms as kit bashing, but but we were not kit bashing. We were trying to make basic Star Wars shapes and then put model kit parts on them, um, and that was kind of how we ended up. And then and you know and then even with the Falcon dish, which went through many versions, I kind of I, I just remember having a conversation because Tom Tenery was also working on it at the same time, which was um, I just went back and had a look at the original Blockade Runner because I'm a you know big Star Wars geek, so I knew that the Blockade Runner was the original Millennium Falcon apart from the cockpit. And so I kind of pulled that reference out, saw the radar dish, and then made a version of that that went on the Falcon. Mm -hmm. And then it got slightly tweaked with the scallops and stuff in post afterwards. But fundamentally, its origins came from the, 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 the Blockade Runner model. That's so interesting, especially because I think all the most successful art and new things introduced in Force Awakens were because of this callback, almost like treating it as if it was a historical document and working your way through it. And even you mentioned it, I'd love to talk because it leads into your work, especially on Unrise, but the Starkiller corridors and having to only do a few different pieces to make a full yeah. set, um, which is very John Barry. Well, we made every corridor. Basically, we had a three corridor set mm-hmm. and every opposite wall. So basically every corridor was different and every opposite wall was different. Because we, we I was just, you know, because uh, an art director we had on the show, uh, Mark Harris, had actually been as a runner on, on Empire. <laughs> and so he knew all these people. He knew John Barry, Norman Reynolds, right. who he did have in one day on, on Force Awakens. You know, and he was the one that should be solely credited with informing everyone or even what Harry Lang right. was at his which because Harry Lang is almost completely missing, if not completely missing from the prequels. Right. Because that was kind of, should we say, lost. And it was Mark Harris. And as you know, there's a Harris wrench called out in The Force Awakens, which is to Mark Harris, the art director, uh-huh. who sort of brought a lot of this stuff back. It's hard to, it, it, it's a very sort of hard process to describe. <laughs> but most of it was trying to figure out what they did. But we worked out that not a lot of it was working because we made the sets quite basic originally, but then they didn't shoot very well. So then we had to sort of make them more layered and detailed because because what was going on back in 1976 was 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 a different process. And, you know, a lot more was 
shot differently. Uh, again, every every film is a combination of you know the way that you design a film, the way the film's lit, the director, the way he shoots. It, it's it's always a little bit of a perfect storm. Well, on the note of a director, then moving to Last Jedi and working so closely with Ryan, I'd be curious to hear about your experiences early on with him building out what became The Last Jedi, but then also throughout that whole process, kind of starting with a director from scratch and working your way through through a Star Wars movie. Yeah, because what, what happened was only about two months into the shoot of Force Awakens, I, and this was at Rick Carter's suggestion, I, I decided to do about 10 or 12 paintings of what could be in you know, The Last Jedi, which I think some of them made it into the art book. And those were sort of thrown out to Ryan, who I met very early on. And um, and so then there was a little bit of a gap, but then basically met Ryan and Ram, and Ryan pitched the story to me um, in London. And and then we just started working together. And Rick Heinrichs was, was brought on as the designer. But this was when we kind of, through the process of Last Jedi, kind of, I ended up being the first Lucasfilm design supervisor because that role was kind of created through the back of us recognising within Lucasfilm when I was there at the time that you needed someone to help, should we say, wave the flag for Star Wars mm -hmm. because these productions are big and unlike just Ralph and Joe doing all the work, there was, you know, you, you need a few more people to work at the pace we work at. And so I, I sort of became the sort of initially sort of working with James again, but then he went up to do solo and then he became the design supervisor on that. But we kind of, kind of co-created those kind of roles I carried on on Last Jedi and he did that. And then, um, but then really it was, um, I mean, Ryan was just, I'm good friends with Ryan. I'd like, and, 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 and he's insanely, insanely clever. And, um, and that first version of the script is kind of what we filmed. I mean, he did tweak it, but, you know, and, and I remember the first picture I did for him was just a quick call and he just went, okay, I've got a planet with salt on it and there's red stuff and and it comes up when they kind of, when I've got these skis that go through it and it's like, okay. And I did a big of a crashed sort of ship. I just took one of the ships off cast from um, Force Awakens, threw it in there. And then he just said, he said, yeah, that'll work. And then I moved on to something else. Right. Uh, but, he's, he but he has a very good vision of the film in his head. And so um, I remember doing a picture of a bomber and I did the inside and it was quite large and he would just go, no, too big, much smaller, B-17. It's like, okay. And so, um, you know, and so, and we just carried on like that. And I basically, because I was there sort of like for a good year and a bit in pre-production. And then I saw the whole thing through in production. And that's where I started the model building process, which was mainly um, as a way to design the ships where I was basically, I just got, got um, Lucasfilm to get me a, a 3D printer and I just started kit bashing the ship designs and making them up. And that's kind of how we ended up at the Gorilla Walker right. and how we ended up with the ski speeder. Cause I was sort of making the models sort of in 3D printing bits out, kit bashing them. And then, so that was the production side of things and then carried on then through post with, with Ryan um, all the way to the very end and, and ended up actually doing a shot in it. My first map painting in about 10 years was in the film of, of one of one of the island close-ups where Luke's on the ledge. Oh, wow. um, and so, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was a quite amazing, amazing process. I would love to talk about my favorite scene and probably the entire sequel trilogy, which is the throne room adventure, the duel and just, from a production side of things, the colors and how it's framed and how it's shot is so interesting and so dynamic. 
I'd love to kind of go through that whole process of, of creating that, how it felt, and then also the importance of the story and how everything around it, whether it was the Holdo maneuver or what was going on around it, was impacting both your design, but also how it was shot. That was one of the longest ones I was doing. It was always going to be the hard one to do was a new throne room. And I've done two now right. and and they're always hard. And, and you've got to kind of, you know, the, 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 the one in Rise of Skywalker was, was, was done for a very specific reason because it was for all nine films. But the one that we ended up with in, in Last Jedi was trying to... The original conversation with Ryan was very... It just makes me laugh as I think about it. He, it was basically, you're on a ship, but you don't know you're on a ship. I need a curtain and I need to burn it down and snow it <laughs> in the throne. And that was kind of it. Uh -huh. And so my first kind of concepts were very, oh, Star Wars, throwing pill lights, blah, blah, blah. And then um, it wasn't kind of working for a long time. It was very kind of, and you know this when you're doing artwork. You kind of, I, I do this now on, on, on Jurassic. You know when you've kind of seen it before. And I'm one of those designers that just, if I've seen it before, I get, you know, I just have to, push as far as we can push to see if we can break it and then we started becoming very abstract um, with it and I ended up loving some some shapes and again even though again I do read that some Star Wars fans roll their eyes and go oh they always go back to Ralph what people have to understand about Ralph's work is Ralph is the design style it's like saying let's do a film about the Roman Empire but not use columns or legionnaires <laughs> you can't do it because Ralph's style is the look of Star Wars and, and that's, you know, from a fundamental level, its DNA is in the first three films. And John Barry, Norman Reynolds, and that amazing team, Harry Lang, joined in and made that with them. But there is an unchangeable thing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's random sci-fi. So you can never ignore Ralph because you just can't, even if you think you can. Otherwise, you might as well just call it random sci-fi and uh -huh. do something else. And so I found a, a lovely little pencil drawing he'd done for some of his Cloud City stuff that had these two gates that just looked that they were just really abstract, just in the middle of the room on their own, or they were for something else, or I cut them out and stuck them over another photocopy or something. But anyway, it, what 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 ended up with doing was literally trying to make a very abstract room that had these massive mullions outside. This what I called the A-frame, which was just behind the throne. Um, which is just, it's just a thing with it. And that's actually where the Oculus started. It was at the very top of there originally. And then it kind of looked so cool. So that then became down and then pulled that off, rebuilt that, that became the Oculus. Um, and then it sort of just developed up and up, including liking the idea of this bridge to walk into it, which I always described as you're leaving the Empire to join Snoke's throne room because you'll go across a very classic bridge to then go into where the actual um, the, the sort of throne was, and and then the red curtain literally came about because um, we were we were talking about what to do with it all, and the, and then red came up because we all love Twin Peaks, mm -hmm. and we just said let's just do the red the Twin Peaks red <laughs> curtain. So we kind of started doing these illustrations with this very graphic red curtain behind it, right. and it kind of just built up from there really. Oh, and that. then I made a three D model which again, actually Mark Harris was the art director around there, which sort of drew up and then um, Rick sort of took it over and got models made. But in that time, I then went back to sort of design this sort of onyx throne, which was my first kind of, should we say, at this point in the story, you know, Snoke was a bit of a mystery. And so I was I was calling back again on the very sort of solid um, 
designs that Ralph did of the throne in the um, underground stuff that he did when they were first designing Coruscant. Um, and and that's kind of, that's kind of it really. And sort of saw the whole through you know thing through. Obviously seeing it all shot in production. I remember many days out there watching the fight and seeing it in the edit and all sorts of stuff. So yeah, it was cool. Yeah, really cool. And it worked. It worked. So congrats. Yeah. <laughs> it worked very well. Uh, yeah. With with Rise of Skywalker, then you escalate to them being co-production designer of the movie. And I'd love to talk about that jump, but also the physical elements that you then started adding. The things that stand out to me, of course, are the blockade runner starting off in the resistance base and really then escalating from there. But I'd love to to kind of dial in on that. Well, what happened was that I was doing mostly a lot of development work on Palpatine, who was a huge secret at the time. Um, and I was sort of the only guy locked away in a room just drawing him. Um, and I did, you know, a couple of hundred versions of what him, the, his area could be like. And the story was moving around and all sorts of stuff like that. But then um, as we were heading into production, I ended up going out to to L.A. to, to con, 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 continue drawing. And it was on the plane there that I did my first versions because we were we were kind of stuck on on what a rebel base was. And so on the plane, I did these five little thumbnail pencil drawings. And it all came from the fact that I always, you know, I always have a conversational thing where I just kind of go, what, you know, it has to mean something to me to, to be a set. And, and because the rebel base could have been anything and we've done bases before, nothing really meant anything to me personally. But I thought we're well, seeing as, as, as Carrie was no longer with us, um, which wasn't really a story thing, but more of a kind of, if we're going to have Princess Leia in her last Star Wars movie, what better way to take the rebels or the resistance who have been very pummeled from the end of Last Jedi, they don't even have a base anymore. They have a ship in a cave. And then, so that was where the start of it came from. And then, then the ship at least means something to her because it's the ship she started this whole journey off in. And so that's kind of how I sort of pitched the blockade runner because it's essentially the one from episode four that they got out of Mothball. And they, 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 that's now all they've got to build up from again. Mm-hmm. And that was what sort of, sort of pitched to JJ. And then it sort of, sort of developed into sort of, you know, sort of beginning to co-design with Rick and it just sort of built up from there. I love it. And then, uh, of course, having to replicate something that everyone has ingrained on their memory, right, is the first ship that you see in Star Wars. What mm. was that like for you having to be a production designer and, and make it a physical thing for people? Um, well, it was it was big. Um, <laughs> basically, what was interesting about it was, I mean, we only made it 60 percent of full size. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the head, everything, it's a lot smaller. But again, as in films, you cheat things with lenses and things look bigger and all sorts of stuff. Um, and, but most of it was just trying to work out how to stage something that large on, on a soundstage and, and get the sort of story right. So we only built the first third of it. Um, and the back two thirds is actually in camera, but is what we call a painted backing, which is essentially just literally the engines and the middle part of the whole ship is only three inches wide on a piece of painted wood by some amazing scenic artists. Uh-huh. So when you look at those shots looking all the way down the line and you see the engines off the back, everything past the sort of the gun turrets is essentially a painting in camera of a full-size version of a flattened version of the ship. Uh, and then JJ said, because he loved the White Corridor so much, can we squeeze that in? So we kind of had to, because the, the ship, 
so we say technically wasn't big enough. So we made a space large enough to put the white corridor in, or at least indicate we had the white corridor in there. And then that developed into actually having the full piece of cockpit in there. So people, because again, when shooting that ship, it was very hard to see scale. And so um, very cleverly, what JJ said was, I need to cover it in people and put people in it. Um, so we ended up putting windows in and all the other stuff, as well as all the people welding all over it. And um, yeah, it was a very, I mean, it was the first set that we laid out and it was it was a it was a massive construction um on on stage five at pinewood and uh, yeah it took what was it about five months build four and a half months build wow well on the note of of the white walls and the corridors the other set that really stands out to me in rise of skywalker is kylo's chambers and then having to having to put it half and half with the village i'd love to talk about that and that whole process well, the white room actually developed from the sketches and the original ideas I was doing for Palpatine. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was in one of the meetings where I was just sort of, you know, we do these early production meetings where we sort of present work and talk about it. And I had these, you know, there were sketches of Palpatine and the Knights of Ren, all these, you know, sort of, I was just sort of storyboarding it, straight sketching it, straight doing concept paintings. And I was also putting a lot of inspirational mood photography in there that sort of felt right for where he would be because we weren't quite sure where he was at that point and what it would look like. And I had all this sort of lovely presentation laid out and we were watching it and I just put it in there was because I'm, you know, you know, I'm the world's biggest fan along with other people, I suppose, of 2001. Yeah. And I put in this one picture of, of essentially Bowman in the room with the lit floor at the end of 2001 with the bed and the, and the pod. Right. And it was just abstractly in there. And we kind of got through the meeting and then sort of it just popped up. And JJ said, what's this doing there? I said, oh, it's Kubrick 2001. I just love it so much. I left it in there. And then and, and it was just it was so out of place. And then the idea came that it could be some kind of pre-medical chamber for him or something mm. that you kind of basically um, it's like a clean room. It was going to be a clean room. And that stuck for a bit. But then it actually, because it kind of, you know, again, started to mean something, we thought it'd be great on this Star Destroyer to then basically use that as his room. Right. And um, and that's kind of how it came up. And so, um, you know, there's lots of nods in there. There's even how is even in that set uh-huh. on, on, on the side. And, um, you know, and it was it was a really hard set to do because there's like about, there's like about eight whites. There's n- none of the sets are white, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's all off white because because when you film sets, you can't you have to kind of interpolate what it will look like on film. So there's about eight whites, and they're all different shades. And the black isn't black; it's grey, and and all sorts of stuff in there. Crazy. And um, and so that was made as a movable set because um, JJ has a wonderful process. I, I always like to think if I would give him playgrounds. And then he finds things to do in the playgrounds. But the playgrounds are normally very um, movable. And so all the pieces in there, apart from two walls and the stairs and the floor, essentially are move aroundable. So he would like move the pillars around, turn them around, and move the whole rooms around in many of the sets that we did. Um, and so we just took some of those pieces and then just dumped them out in the wow. in the no set which was how they shot kind of crossover fight between ray and kylo i love that that's incredible and we've talked a lot about throne room for snoke but then of course in rise you have the original return of the jedi throne room but then you also have the new palpatine throne i'd love to talk about having to to work on both of those and kind of create palpatine yeah well we we weren't going to do two things in skywalker one of them was was (laughs) use the throne room for return of the jedi Uh uh-huh 
and we weren't going to have a throne room for the end. <laughs> and the Death Star throne room naturally evolved through Rick and myself strongly believing it was important as a Star Wars fan to not just be an abstract place in the Death Star we've never seen before, because it could be an abstract place you've never seen in the Death Star before, but but which was what you know we would we were trying to work out with, with with JJ. But but to me it was very important to have a place you recognized because when when I was looking back at the original Death Star or even Return of the Jedi, apart from corridors and a hangar or two hangars, you know, in a, in a detention centre. There's nothing to hold on to. So it would have just been stuff. It would have been right. a place. No one would have recognised it. It wouldn't have meant anything. So then the idea came about that we would have the wrecked tower where that's collapsed in on the building where there's the secret vaults underneath the floor that would have been in, the, in, in essentially... And again, I know a lot of people have said it, it's like, oh, you just stuff that in there. That doesn't make any sense. Well, I, you know, I know a lot about Star Wars and we made a plan and that you could have a room below because there's a giant collar that holds the thing up as well as the trench. And it could have been on the side of the trench and we were doing doors on the side because originally it was going to be flooded and she was going to swim down. Uh-huh. Um, and we, we decided not to do that. And then, and so then we just decided to use a sort of a secret door hmm. which you know you you know we're in you know it's our story we can decide to do that and i so i found the right place that you could do that in the underground bit where luke and vader fought right because again it's all about symbology for me and these are important places where luke and vader fought and so to have the secret door be between those two moments that ray turns up again we're not doing this stuff abstractly because we think it's cool it's very heavily worked out and discussed and and so and and that was a brilliant set to build. And I actually remember walking in there when we drew them up. Um, and we we had the first cast out of these the massive windows. And I just, I just walked in and went bloody hell, they're big. <laughs> they are. I you know Norman, who I met on on Force Awakens, yeah. has been absolute idol to me as a production designer. Because um, again, you know, I, I just have to you know. Again, Star Wars fans, you know, have to give Norman a lot of credit for a lot of the very cool things that came through Return of the Jedi and through Empire. Oh, sorry, Not that good. is actually Rick. that's Rick Carter just pinging me because I was talking to him earlier. <laughs> um, but but basically, um, yeah, we I, I remade the set and I did actually ask Kathy if he wanted to come out, but but he he you know he came out for Force right. and he didn't feel the need. But, I, but it was it was pretty spine tingling to remake that that set and again we did plan it out because everyone's going why is the throne there well it collapsed through right. from the floor above and then i wanted to set in front of the window as it was where the emperor left it it's it's all about symbology and it's very very important mm-hmm. stuff um for the sort of texture of the film and so there was that one but then when it came to the one at the end originally we had palpatine in like an underground chamber which was actually where all the life support stuff mm-hmm. was that the I sort of did, which you saw very briefly at the beginning of the movie. Um, and then at some point during the story, there was just a ping from JJ that said, I think I need a throne room. <laughs> like, okay. And so then, um, and again, it's like, well, what means something? And so, because you can do a thousand, you know, there's another throne room and everything. And so I, I'd always been intoxicated by that. What at the time wasn't very famous this little shadow sketch of of the of this sort of spider-like shape at the back behind palpatine's head from return of the jedi and and it just sort of went from there and then i 
I used ZBrush to turn it into a sort of, sort of a 3D form. And, um, and then we just sort of built up, built up the world around it. That's incredible. And I mean, it turned out super cool. And I loved seeing that whole process play out in the documentary. It was great to kind of see that all come into play. Yeah. Well, I, hopefully, I mean, in a strange way, because I went straight from Star Wars onto Jurassic. I hadn't actually had time to see Debs' wonderful Doctor interview, even though I heard it's fantastic. Yeah. I need to watch it. But I hope people, when they watch that, do realize that the amount of set construction and scale of it was massive. Yeah. You know, even though Star Wars has tons of visual effects, both you know, on all three films, you know, there were no green screen boxes. You know, there, there, there was, you know, it, there was a huge amount of the effects in all the films, but I made a full size blockade runner and a big chunk of Star Destroyer that, that, that you know, filled Cardington hangar, which is right. the size of a city. Right. And so, you know, I mean, all these places, you know, the, the, the amount of real stuff was enormous. Yeah. Well, I mean, speaking of sets and speaking of these iconic things that we're so used to and, and love, the Lars Homestead and the final shots on Tatooine, mm. what was that like for you and your team recreating it, right? Obviously not having to go to Tunisia, but still making it feel like it was... We were all done in secret in, in Jordan when we were doing the Jordan stuff. And, and actually uh -huh. it was even hidden from the crew that were there. Wow. Um, so I, some people did know it was there because we, we sort of had to place it there, but essentially it was all under a tent up until the day it was shot. So, and it was actually right only about 75 yards away from the main base where everyone was at lunch every day <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Cause it was the only place we found that had a, that sort of had a, had a sort of flat plane enough to kind of give us, give us sort of enough mid ground and everything. Mm -hmm. But so yeah, recreated literally the homestead and the look of all the, you know, the sort of the, the door plates and, and, and the pit. Um, mm -hmm. And, but then took it to a level where actually the inspiration for aging it came from the photos taken of what the real wreck now looks like in Tunisia. Mm -hmm. And so I showed that to the painters and the plasterers of what we were trying to match because it degraded naturally and looked pretty good. Um, not as it should have done as something to protect, but it looked pretty good for what we needed. So that was kind of how that was kind of made up. And that was so all, all in that area, because I didn't actually, I didn't stay for the actual shooting of that. I had to fly out the night before because of the. Um, I, as a production designer, I'm laying lots of train track for a director to 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 film, and so I sort of flew out the night before. But I remember presenting that to JJ, and to one side I had the model of the sand crawler I'd made because I got the right. apartment to make a sand crawler that they shot, which is in the sort of one of the final shots of the film. It's quite strange when you're doing it. You're very busy, and 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 your mind is like, oh my god, next thing, next thing, next thing, and then you're there trying to make it look better and better and, and keep it all going. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, I've got some pretty cool pictures of me stood in and around. <laughs> yes, um, and, and another one's in the middle of the day with my head in my hands, going, oh my god, it's not working because you know the job's not easy. There's a lot of lot of energy and effort and pain goes into a lot of these things. I'm sure. And I mean, now looking back, right, you're you're able to take a step back and look at especially the three sequel movies as a whole mm. and your experience is kind of growing not only as an artist and then as a production designer. And are there anything that really stick out to you, whether it was a set or a scene or a drawing that, you know, you're the most proud of or what that has kind of carried with you? Well, I, I, I suppose there are different milestones. I don't know if it's about being proud. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously proud of everything we did. And I do think that, you know, because I, you know, again, and I'm not just saying this, I, I, I really enjoy the trilogy. I think it feels very Star Wars. 
and, and, it, and it is Star Wars and nothing's ever going to, even to us or me, feel the same as what it felt like when I was a kid in 77 seeing Star Wars for the first time. But there's a generation of kids now that are going to watch these films and they're going to be that version in 10 or 15 years' time, that this is right. their Star Wars. And, and so that, I think, is, is very important. Um, I was super happy to have sort of, dis- well, I mean, there's personal milestones, I suppose. Getting in an art Star Wars book on Force Awakens, obviously I've done right. you now, but that was a big kind of, oh my God, I've just, you know, because I bought these things, you know, right. 70s, 80s, that was massive for me. Designing a ship in Force Awakens, the, the Rebel Transport was 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 huge, sort of personal uh-huh. thing. To go into a Lego shop and buy your own design is a big thing. <laughs> yeah. um, all of Last Jedi... I I adored um, because of the friendships I made and the creativity that was involved in that film and and you know and I you know and, and even the madness that was even inventing the gorilla walker on holiday because I modelled that in my I have on holiday when I was uh, taking a rest seeing my, visiting my brother in Florida and I was just I was literally by the pool modelling it every day and I took it back and showed it to Ryan and that's how the whole thing started you know and then. Should we say, I, I'm super proud of all three films, but then as my sort of position on the films kind of grew, so I got even more proud. And every and to be honest with you, you know, I love everything about um, what we did on Force Awakens because the team was incredible trying to find their way through what was a really hard process to, to discover what we all felt was Star Wars. Last Jedi, um, super proud of what Ryan wrote and did and made as a film. Um, and again, everyone is always entitled to their opinions, uh, and and that's fine because you know I I don't like some things and I do like other things, um, but and everyone can do that. Um, and then Rise of Skywalker again, just should we say that's a different level for me because instead of being like a kind of a you know I was that you know it, it was a much more responsible position. I mean, I was there to deliver what was this enormous film in a in, in a schedule, but on a scale that was massive, in in multiple locations around the world. And so, um, you know, it, it was an amazing seven years. Um, yeah. You know, and and <laughs> I, I I don't know how. I think I need more time to look back on it. Making any films is incredible and and a lot of yeah. fun. But for me, that was that kind of, you know, I sort of went from this kid that wanted to draw because he saw Star Wars to being the kid that designed a Star Wars film was, was is, is the thing really more than anything else. I love it. And that's why I love especially talking to you and talking to the people that make it because it is, no matter how you feel about a movie or whatever, it's the people that are making it are the ones that were so inspired by it and wanted to do it again. So. Well, that, and that's the thing I've always said to everybody, regardless of, again, what the reception of any film that I've worked on is. Because I've worked on films that I thought was going to be fantastic and they've not came out well, and I've worked on films that I thought were going to be an absolute, and they've turned out amazingly well. Right. And, and you just never know, and you never know what the reaction is, but what is never ceases to amaze me, and especially about the Star Wars films is, and, and people can disagree with me all day, um, the passion and Star Wars fandom of the of, of, of the of the people that worked on those films is as passionate as anyone else out there. And what I would say to to, to the people that kind of you know we go, oh, you don't like that, you're not done that, you're doing that for me, is like, well, I was the guy that loved it so much, I dedicated my career to get to do it. Right. So you know, if, you, if someone has a problem with it, then the only way to change what you don't like is to be a part of it. 
And so, you know, I decided to try to be a part of it when I knew that they were going to make episode seven and to try to hold on to what was important to me as a kid watching Star Wars films. And that was all these design influences and conversations and thought and 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 just you know just you know just to try to make it as a Star Wars as possible. And I'd like to think you know again from a from a visual perspective. I mean, I'm I'm so proud of how those three Star Wars films look, regardless of what anybody likes, doesn't like, loves about the story, the characters. You know, my department was to provide a look to complement the story, and 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 you know, and we did everything we could to make it feel like the way I felt when I saw these films in 77 and 83 and even you know going to see the prequels in 99 there's a, you know there's a feeling you got and and that was the number one thing in everything we did I love it and I mean it, it worked so I'm excited to see your I mean I'm excited to see Jurassic World no one has any idea what we're up to I can't I really can't wait so it'll yeah. be great uh, and all I can say is it's not what anyone expects awesome Awesome. Yeah, very different. Well, I appreciate it. Stay safe. Um, yeah, thank you. And, and you. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. No, no. Uh, thanks for thank, thanks, thanks for for the interview. Because 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 again, it is very important. I think because what what's really strange I find about filmmaking, and sorry if I just prattle on about this, is just that um, the people that you interview, you know, there are people like myself who literally spent three years overlapping on every Star Wars film or on on these films and stuff, and so you know. It, 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 when people see a movie and they sort of see these little snippets of things, they don't realise that there's a bunch of us that literally sort of are there for years to allow that to happen. And so, you know, it, 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 it's not about unsung heroes because there's just a huge amount of people behind the scenes that help make any of these films happen. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and you know, there's a lot of passion involved. Well, I appreciate you listening and I appreciate, um, of course, everyone that comes on because I, I get such a huge just thrill out of talking to everyone making these. So, um, yeah. but again, thank you so much for coming on. And, uh, we'll talk soon. All right. All the best. Thank you again to Mr. Jenkins for his time, as well as those really kind words about the show. Look for his next work as a production designer in the upcoming Jurassic World Dominion. This is your last week. To enter our signed August giveaways, all you have to do is go to the app where you listen to this podcast and leave a five-star rating and a review. Also announced today is our five-shirt celebration merch collab happening only this weekend with our friends at Super Yaki. From George Lucas to Ahmed Best to Star Tours, head to superyaki.com for the details. And until next Wednesday, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.